go with special music this morning, and I know I just invited you to see, but actually we're going to stand for the reading of God's Word. So if you guys would, please stand with me. The passage this morning is, we wrap up our series in looking at the life of David. It's going to be from 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to be looking at all the first 15 verses, but I'm just going to read starting in verse 7. It's on page 263 of your ESV Bibles if you'd like to follow along. The word of the Lord says this, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word. You guys can have a seat. God, I beg you this morning to move in this place. God, we are desperate for you. God, work in our lives to bring us to a place of repentance. And God, bring us to a place of salvation this morning and hope and freedom, Lord Jesus, because of your word. God, create in us a clean heart. God, make us a people after Your heart the way that You created in David. A man after Your own heart. Do that for us. Do that for us individually and for us collectively this morning. We beg You to move. We beg You to bring peace and mercy and grace and healing and freedom. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. As Jared said, if you will turn to Second uh, Samuel chapter 12. Uh, Jared, it's a little hot up here, not temperature-wise, but it's like ringing in my ears. I can't imagine what it's doing in y'all's ears. So if you bring the mic down, please. You know, we've been walking o- o- through the book of First and Second Samuel, and today we come to the conclusion of our study of the life of David. If God willing, one day we'll come back and finish the book of 2 Samuel. But just as a way of cliff notes, the rest of the book of 2 Samuel is a book of devastation and judgment. And how this passage of last week and this week will lead into the rest of David's life. A life of utter chaos and destruction. You remember where we left last week. David had this desire, this lust to be with Uriah the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba, and he called for Bathsheba. He slept with Bathsheba. Bathsheba sends word back to him that he's, she's pregnant and she's going to have a child. And then David tries to devise this plan. And he plotted and he planned and he became uh, 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 not just an adulterer that day, but also a murderer, a thief. 
Many scholars say in that moment, David broke all Ten Commandments because of the one sin of the adultery. And we talked last week. It started way back when he took a wife when he already had one. Because God's commandment was to take one wife for one husband. Isn't that so true with sin? And yet the place of sin that we don't get to see how it always ends, and that's the great craftiness of Satan, is it only takes one snowflake to make an avalanche. Right? It only takes one snowflake. And so often in our lives, and the way the great deceiver deceives us, is we just want to focus in on the snowflake and not the carnage that's about to happen in our lives. Remember, that's where we ended the passage last week, that David had thought he got away with it. He killed Uriah, he took Bathsheba into his palace, they got married, and that's where he thought it ended. But remember where we left last week, the last verse, the last sentence of the chapter. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But let's never forget, loved ones, that God sees all things at all times. God is never taking a nap on us. And it's not because God wants to get at us and wants to chastise us. God never takes His eyes off of us because of one thing and one thing only. He loves us. See, this passage that we're going to read is a passage of love. Let's not forget that. God looks on those and disciplines those, it tells us in Hebrews, of those that He loves. And so my great prayer for us this week has been this. Is there that thing or those things in your life that you, you and I have thought have been hidden for a long time? My prayer is that your seat gets hot, not because of my words, but because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the same way that must have happened in David's life and this passage. We're going to look at four things from this passage this morning. My prayer is that all of us in this place will walk away renewed and refreshed in our salvation. Whether you come to Christ today for the first time that you'd leave renewed, whether you've been a believer for a long time, that you would be renewed the way that King David was renewed in his heart and soul in this passage. Let us dive into the passage. We leave off that what David had done displeased the Lord. Verse 1a, and the Lord sent Nathan. Now many scholars say this, it's a year between the last sentence in the first sentence. A year has transpired from when David began to plot and plan. And God saw it all. So the Lord, in His great and sovereign timing, sent a prophet. We get a snapshot into what David was thinking and feeling if you'll turn just for a moment to Psalm 32. I believe this is written after his repentance, but we get a, a window into his life for that year of his lack of repentance. 
says this in verse 3 and 4. My prayer for you, as cruel as it may sound, that this would be true of you and true of me when there's a lack of repentance. David says this, And when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Can you not just hear the anguish that's going on in the unrepentant heart of David? You know, the great sabotage, in my opinion, is this idea of conviction. See, the longer we go without repentance in our conviction, the, the more that we get used to the heavy hand of the Lord. And when we get used to the heavy hand of the Lord, we no longer feel its heaviness. Because we just get so used to it. And our hearts become callous around the, the words of the Holy Spirit. And when our hearts get callous, is that not true? When our hands get callous, it's less painful. Until God rips off the callous. And then it's extremely painful. And we see a callous heart that David is saying, for this last year of my life, the hand of the Lord is upon me. And I wonder when it first happened, if it was heavier. And then by the end of it, we're going to see in this passage, by the end of it, he's totally removed from his sin. Though his sin is not removed from him. Catch that. Though he's removed from his sin, his sin is never removed from him. We cannot remove our sin. No matter how much we want to deny it, no matter how much we want to drink over it, no matter how much we want to sleep over it, spend over it, there's only one thing that removes sin or a lie. It's called repentance. And so there's where David is. And we won't see this in this passage. And this is the harshness of this passage. Even those of his repentance, there is always consequences. So if you think this morning that, man, if I just come repent, then all the consequences will be stripped from me. That is not true this morning. There is always consequences. The deeper the sin, the deeper the consequence. We'll see that in this passage. But the first thing that we see is this. In our sin, the promise is this. The Lord will come. I don't know when He's going to come. The Lord will become. He tells us in Luke chapter 12, the things that we do from the, from in the secret places will be shouted from the rooftops. Who do you think is doing the shouting? The Lord Jesus. He tells us in Galatians, I will not be mocked. Our sin is a mockery of God and God's call on our lives. And God and His promises say, I will never be mocked. Don't you be fooled. You see, I think David thought, man, I got away with it. I escaped that one. Remember, because he had escaped the one years and years and years before when he took that second wife. When society said, man, David, that's okay. And he had gotten away with it till this moment. So the promise is this, the Lord will come. You see that in the first four words of the text. And the Lord sent. 
how did Nathan ever show up at the door of the palace? It's because the Lord finally came. He finally came. See, although our hearts are prone to wander, although our hearts wander, the promise is true. God always pursues the wandering heart. Amen? When God pursues the wandering heart, He also chastises it as well. We'll see that in a moment. We see this, that the Lord will come in where in Genesis 3, you remember Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they sin against God. And what do they do? They wander away from the presence of God. So they think. They get caught up in their guilt. They get caught up in their shame. And they wander into the bushes and they find some fig leaves and try to cover their shame and cover their sin in a fig tree. And what does it say? The text says to us, God came out of heaven and wandered in the wilderness to find them. You see, precious ones, Though you run from God, you can never escape God. You will be always found by God. That's His love. God loves us so much that though when we wander, He pursues us. And you will never outrun God. Look at the book of Jonah. You cannot outrun God. Look at all the mighty men that tried to run from God. Remember Moses, when he killed his uh, fellow man, he wandered into the wilderness. And where did God find him? In the middle of the wilderness. Where you go, God will always already be there. So the first thing is, God will always come. We'll see in a moment the lengths to which God will come. Just as a sidebar and a side note, the gospel shows us just how far He comes. The cross shows us just how far He will go for you. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. The second thing is, when God comes, when God shows up, God will always speak. God will not be silent in our sin. He sends his messenger. He sends his voice piece. That's what the prophet was. That's what a prophet was. Nathan was the prophet that replaced Samuel. Remember, Samuel had walked with God. Samuel was the one that had anointed David to be king. And then Samuel died. And so there had to be another prophet that God would put into place to speak to his people. And that was Nathan. And so he says to Nathan, Hey, Nathan, I want you to go and I want you to go prophesy and go speak truth. Tell this parable to the king. And I wonder in that moment if Nathan thought, oh man, this is terrifying. I, I got to go tell the king that? I, I've got to go reveal to the king his wickedness, his sin? But we see the bravery of Nathan. And we see his obedience. And David, and Nathan came to David, it says, he came to him and said, This is what the Lord speaks to David after he shows up at his doorpost. He begins to tell them, David, this parable. It's amazing how God works. It's amazing 
even the parable of how God had sent Nathan in the depths of the parable. Like, Nathan didn't come right out the gate and say, hey, as we'll see in a few moments, you're the man. Hey, you're the one that committed adultery. No, he was very um, gentle and kind in his rebuke. You see, God could have done it any way he wanted. God could have sent the, the messenger to David and said, hey, today you're going to die. You look throughout the Old Testament. When the prophets showed up, the people of God got scared because they knew something was about to go down. Like God didn't need to send Nathan to David to rebuke him. God could have killed him right on the spot. We see that in the text. Remember just a few chapters before. That that man reached his hand out and disobeyed God by putting his hand on the ark. And what happened to the man? He fell dead. So God could have, when he came and spoke, he could have said and done anything. But we see the gentle kindness of God in this text to a wicked, wicked, unrepented king. So Nathan shows up and he gives in to tell this parable, this story. You know, and this had happened many times in the kingdom. You see, not only was David the king, he was also the judge. The king was the highest judge in the land. And so when there was moments of conflict that uh, the, the judges underneath him couldn't figure out, the, the prophets would bring him to the king and say, King, you figure it out. Remember that moment with Solomon a few Moments later, a few chapters later, they bring this lady in. They can't decide what baby. And he said, cut it in half. Kind of extreme, but that's what Solomon, the great judge, said. And so this was not uncommon for David to hear cases. And he says this, there's a rich man. He had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he, and he had brought it up and he grew up with him and with his children. And he used to eat of his morsels and drink from his own cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. So we get this picture that there's these two men, a rich man and a poor man, and the poor man, all that he has that's important to him outside of his family is this one little lamb that he cares for and he loves and he nurtures and he grows it up as a child. And then this rich man who had everything. Anything the rich man wanted, he could have had. See that in this passage. And now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own lambs or his own flock or his own herds to prepare for the guest who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who would come to him. Here's the characters of the story. We have rich man equals David. Poor man equals Uriah. Sheep equals Bathsheba. The traveler equals lust. Lust came to David. And lust always wants more. And the one that's lusting doesn't want to ever sacrifice his own, so he's always going to take from someone else. That's the story that just happened in chapter 11. And so David 
hears the word of the Lord, the Lord speaks. The Lord lays out his sin in front of David. And let's see what happens to David. This is why I believe that David was so far removed from his sin. You know, for us, we read the text and we're like, yeah, it's obvious. David's the rich man, the king. Uriah's the poor man. The sheep is Bathsheba. Lust is the visitor. But what does David do and say? David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this severe, this deserves to die. He shall also restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David says not only does he deserve to die, but before he deserves to die, he's got to pay it back fourfold. David was going back to the text. David was going back to the laws that he knew so well. He knew that what the consequences of stealing were to pay it back fourfold. You read that in Ecclesiastes and uh, Exodus. So he had the knowledge of the law. But we see the law had not transformed the heart yet. That he deserves to die. The Lord speaks. And maybe this morning the Lord is speaking to you. Maybe in this moment He's revealing things that have been hidden for so long that need to be confessed. Do not be like David and wait for another year to go by to bring confession. The longer we wait, the deeper the consequences. The longer sin goes unconfessed, the deeper the sentence, which we go to next. The Lord will come, the Lord will speak, and the Lord will bring judgment, or the Lord will bring a sentence. Now here you may say to yourselves, well, does it not tell us that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Amen. There is no condemnation for us eternally. The passage is talking eternal condemnation, but there's always earthly ramifications for our sin. He would not be a good God or a just God to let us go on sinning without bringing us some kind of discipline. Parents, what if you raise children with no discipline because there is now no condemnation to them? We would have hellions on our hands. I, I mean, I will speak for myself. I would. I sort of do already. Now, I bring discipline. Poor Peter. Not really. Be obedient. There's no condemnation, Peter. I, that's just what I want to tell him. His little key brain can't pick up on it, though. So he gets to learn the hard way. Peter one day is going to come back and listen to these messages, and it's going to be a long afternoon, I think, on the porch. Dad, really? You said that? Yep, I sure did. But there's always a sentence for our sin. God will always bring judgment upon us. And His judgment is out of love. Judgment is good. It's kind. But it's also severe. It's also severe. And Nathan says to him, 
door to man. That guy just shared about the one that you just brought judgment upon. Nathan said, you are the man. I have this picture in my mind in the throne room of the palace that Nathan comes in and David's first sitting on the throne. He's hearing this and all of a sudden at the end I see David kind of spring up being the bold man that he is and says, that man deserves to die. That man, and he's just this bigness of David in, in the courtroom or in the throne room and then all of a sudden you see this little feeble finger, Nathan pointed at it and says, you're the man. And I wonder in that moment if David just sank back in the, in the throne and bowed his head and then relived the last year of his life. Oh, man. And then in the sentencing, look what God so graciously does to David. Oh, it's so beautiful. Look where God starts. God does not start pointing the finger at David. God starts by pointing the finger at God Himself. You see that in the passage. It's amazing in that moment, David, he says, you're the man. And then in that moment, you know, we want to then go through the litany of how he's the man. Like you did this and 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 you did this. But in God's gracious, loving kindness, God says, oh, David, but don't forget what I've done for you. Don't forget. Thus says the Lord, David, the God of Israel. Remember, he circled all the I statements or me statements in the passage. Oh, David, don't forget. I anointed you, the king. You did not do that for yourself, David. David, not only did I anoint you king, but I also delivered you, David, from the hand of Saul. Not only did I deliver you, not only did I make you king, he says in verse 8, but I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all that you've ever wanted. Look at all that I've done for you, David. And this, he's not shaming David. He's setting the banquet table for David to remember, David, you did not do this for yourself. I did this for you. I gave you everything. And then he says this, and if this were not, if this were too little, I would have added as much as you wanted. Oh, David. All that I gave you, there was even more to come if you just had to ask if you had wanted it. Well, here's your great sin, David. You see, his great sin wasn't adultery. His great sin wasn't murder. His great sin wasn't lying. His great sin wasn't plotting. His great sin wasn't running. His greatest sin was not remembering the gratitude and the thankfulness of all that God had done for him. You see, that's what sin always does to us. Remember, that's what happened in the garden. God had planted Adam and Eve in the garden and said, all of it's yours. Everything. Take as much as you want. But just don't eat 
that one place because I know what's best for you. And then Satan wormed his way in. And did God really say that? Did God really say not to do that? And in that moment, he didn't just deceive Eve, but he robbed her of gratefulness and gratitude for all that God had given to him and to her. That's what happened with David. Remember all that David had to say in that moment with God on the on the roof was, God, I want more. Like all he had to do is humble himself and God, there's something lacking in me that I can't find. So give me more of you. And God would have graciously poured it out. But where did his eyes go? It went on a beautiful woman and said, man, I want that. That will fulfill me. You, God, won't. He missed his relationship and his thankfulness and his gratitude with God. And God said, look, don't don't be fooled, David. Your sin started because of your lack of gratitude and thankfulness. And so then God brings the sentence. He says, now, this is what I've done, but David, don't forget what you've done. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonite. Now, therefore, here's the sentence, the sword shall never depart from your house, because why? Not because you despise Uriah, not because you despise Bathsheba, not because you despise this, but why? All this, the sword will not depart from you because you have despised me, is what God says in the passage. You have despised me. You have hated me. You have loathed me. You've not been grateful for me, is what the passage says. If you hadn't despised me, you wouldn't have broken my command. If you hadn't hated me, you wouldn't wandered away from my word. But you despise me, and because you despise me, I must, David, I must bring judgment on you. And this is what the judgment will look like. The sword will never depart from your house, and that's the rest of David's life. Just in a few moments, Later, chapters later, Amar and Tamar. There's incest, there's murder. I mean, the rest of David's story, the rest of his genealogy, it looks pretty grotesque because of this. And we may be saying, God, what are you doing? Why why not just put it all on David? I don't know. But he doesn't. The, The soul will never leave your house. And this is what I'm going to do, David. And I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he will lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it in secret, but I will do the things before all of Israel and before all the sun. I believe as a way to remind all of Israel, God will not be mocked. God must do things to us 
in front of other people for the goodness and for the sake of other people. That may sound crazy. But I look back on my own story and I look back 10 years, 10 years to this weekend when I checked out of rehab. And I look back on that time and it was a hard time, but my sin was broadcast in front of 3,500 people. That was painful. It was devastating. It was lonely. It was hurtful. But now 10 years later, I look at that moment that God disciplined me publicly to bring freedom to other men that were sitting in that congregation that day. You see, my sin being exposed to 3,500 people, those men that were struggling with the same thing I was struggling with, the chastisement of the Lord was pressed on their heart. And so God will often discipline us for the sake of other people. That's what happens with David. And in that moment is the great remorse of David. Finally, the weight of his sin, the weight of his depravity, the weight of all that God had been sharing through Nathan and that all he'd been hanging on to a year falls right onto his shoulders. And these are the only words that David speaks after the judgment in the past. He says this. And then before that, he said, I'll do this in front of everyone. And David, verse 13 says this, and David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Where does David start with his confession? He doesn't go to, I sinned against Bathsheba. I sinned against Uriah. I sinned against Joab. I sinned against myself. He, he doesn't even try to manipulate it, to hide it, to critique it, to justify it. He simply, when the weight of God's judgment fell upon him, the goodness of God, all that he could mutter was, I've sinned against the Lord. That is true repentance. Anything other than that this morning for you and I is just justification. It's denial. It's minimization. Your sin, my sin, though it's wreaked havoc on a lot of people, it starts with our sin against a holy God. That's what sin is. Sin has called us to, God has called us to holiness. God has set us apart for holiness. He says in Peter, I've given you all that you need to live a life of godliness. So if you and I aren't living the life of godliness, then we're missing the mark. We're sinning against the holy God. Our confession must start like David. I've sinned against you and you alone, O God. But look where David does it. David doesn't do it in the privacy of his own room. David does it Publicly. In his own throne room. That other people would have heard the king of all of Israel confess before God in front of other people. Confession must be done publicly. If the sin is done publicly, confession must be done publicly. 
I've sinned against God and God alone. And oh, I'm so grateful. The passage doesn't stop there, men and women. We'd be hopeless if that's just where it stopped. If all of our, all of it stopped with our confession, we would still be doomed. I've sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan said this to David. Though the Lord comes, though the Lord speaks, though the Lord sentence, the Lord always, hear me people, the Lord always saves. And then he says this. Nathan said to David, the Lord also puts away your sin and you shall not die. That's salvation. But then he goes on and says, those are salvation. Oh, I still love you enough, David, that there still has to be consequences. I know you've sinned against me. And I want you to know you've, you've been redeemed. You've been set free. You've been saved. But oh, there's still going to be consequences. Nevertheless, because of your sin, because of your deed, and you utterly scorn the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. And then Nathan left. And then we see the next passage. Scholars say that this three, four month old baby, the Lord takes him from David and Bathsheba. Hey, what? See, I think so often we come to God and we come to repentance and we're hoping to be saved, but I wonder if we're really hoping to be saved or we're hoping to be saved from the consequences. Like we do repentance, but it's not really I've repented to you, God, I've sinned against you. I'm repenting so that doesn't happen. But that's not the Word of God. God's Word says there will always be consequences for our sin. And with that being said, will we still come to a place of repentance to God even though there's going to be consequences? You see, that's the beauty of God. The Lord always saves. Do you come to a place this morning that you are recognizing your sin against a holy God and you cannot cover it or hide it any longer? Is your chest burning within you? That's called the Holy Spirit's conviction upon you. But see, the promise is this. When we come to that place, and we come to true repentance, there is true salvation. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll give you your time back next week when we go to go to dinner. I'm not sorry for that. I'm just giving you your time back. We're eight minutes over. That's really just because I want to eat early next week. I shouldn't have said that out loud. Let's go to Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse ten. This must be all of us. For godly grief, 
or godly sorrow produces or leads to salvation without regret. Meaning, I come to the Lord and I repent to the Lord. And I have no regret even with what's about to happen. My greatest fear for us, church, is that we don't live that way. But we live the bad path of the world. Whereas worldly grief, worldly sorrow, that's the idea of, man, I'm just sorry I got, I got, I got caught. I hope I don't get caught again. I'll be better at not getting caught next time. I hope I can hide it better. I hope I can plot my way out of it better. That, that's the sorrow that the world has. But the promise of worldly sorrow or worldly grief is this. It always leads to death. One of the apostles tells us that when sin is fully conceived, it leads to death. And so the ultimate choice is this. Because here's the promise for us today. The Lord has come. The Lord has spoken. The Lord has sentenced. The Lord saves. But now He's saying to us, will you and I come to a true place of repentance? Or we just continue to play the game worldly. Sorry. Thank God, David. This day led to godly sorrow that led to repentance. Turn with me as we close to Psalm 51. This psalm was, in my opinion, written within moments, if not hours, if not moments, within his confession. This must be the cry of our heart this morning. I'll read it and then I'll pray for us. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? Your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercies, blot out all of my transgression, wash me thoroughly from all of my iniquities, and cleanse me from all of my sins. For I know my transgressions. I know the sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inner being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop. Cleanse me. Wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or, would, or I would give it to 
you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice of God is this, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. My hope is this morning for us that we're not trying to make sacrifices, that we're not trying to make burnt offerings to the Lord, that we're not putting more money into the plate or giving our time more to this place with the hopes of getting out of our sin, but God would break your heart and give you a contrite spirit. That's the only thing that pleases the Lord. And now as we close, turn with me to Psalm 33. May this be true for us today. Psalms 32, 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom God counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That only happens one way through the finished work of Christ Jesus on the cross. I started this morning with this. There was a great veteran. His name is the Lord Jesus. He lived a perfect life on our behalf because He knew we could not live a perfect life. He knew that we would sin against the Holy God. He knew that we would blaspheme Him. He knew that we would be much like David in this passage. And it says this, though He still came after us while we were yet sinners. It's not anything that you've done that God comes calling to you. It's the work of God that God calls you and me because of what His Son did for all of us on the cross. Now, who you be reminded of that this morning? If you were saved this morning, it's not in of yourself. It's not of works that no man should boast. It's a free gift of God. And if it's a free gift of God, we ought to be celebrating that free gift of God because all of us were like David. Wretched men and women. We ought to be celebrating every moment we come into this place that there's a God that sent His Son to redeem all of us from our sin because what God says in His Word, our sin deserves a punishment and that punishment is eternity without God forever and ever. It's called hell. And yet the goodness of God came calling to you. He spoke to you. He shared the sentence with you, but then He saved you. Amen. If you do not know that Lord Jesus today, today would be the day that God through His Holy Spirit is saying, you are the man. You are the woman. Place your hope and faith in that God today because He loves He cares for you and He's calling you by name. God, oh God, have mercy on us. God, let Your Spirit ring in our minds and our hearts that You forgive no matter what we've done. That You blot out all of our iniquity and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of the finished work of Christ Jesus on the cross. It is true, in this room, we are all the man. That's not a good thing. There is a Savior who died, continues to pursue us, who continues to speak to us, and who continues to 
cover all of our righteousness so that we would be white. May that be true for us this morning. If you do not know God this morning, I pray that you come find me, Frank, one of the deacons. We'd love to share with you the story of salvation. If you're here this morning and the God of the universe through His Spirit is pressing on your heart that you need to make confession that this would be the day, that you would not leave here like David that day, because it's true. What we do that is sin displeases God. And God, you promise us you will come. You will speak. You will send them the greater promises you will make. I pray this in your sweet son's name. Amen. You would rise for the benediction this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon all of us and be gracious to each of us. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and upon me and give us grace and peace today. Amen. Grace and peace be with you today.